Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm Frank Cooper, BlackRock's Chief Marketing Officer and the host of today's episode. We're continuing our mini-series on sustainability. And to remind those just joining this conversation, we're talking about sustainability in a way that it's not limited just to the environment. It includes climate action, but also speaks to the choices we make today in regard to social and economic resources and how those choices affect our collective future. On our last episode, we put the spotlight on how our transition to the digital age will shape the future of work and corporate culture. Today, we want to focus on another aspect of the social and economic dimension of sustainability, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is to have a conversation about DEI in a way that no matter your background, no matter your current circumstances, it has the capacity to make us all better, to make us better leaders and a more fulfilled and energized workforce. And we're very fortunate to have a special guest with us today, Carla Harris. Carla is a vice chairman of wealth management and senior client advisor at Morgan Stanley. She's the host of a podcast called Access and Opportunity with Carla Harris. She's a gospel recording artist, and she's the author of two books, and I believe she's working on a third. In 2013, Carla was appointed by President Barack Obama to chair the National Women's Business Council. And she was also named to Fortune Magazine's list of the 50 most powerful Black executives in corporate America, among many, many other achievements. So, Carla, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Bid. Well, thank you, Frank, for having me on The Bid. Now, so good to see you. And we have a wide range of topics to cover. So let's just jump right in. Let's do it. I want to start on the personal side. And I could be wrong, but when I think about all the things that you're doing, the energy and commitment and authenticity that you put into it, for me, I sense that it comes from somewhere deep within. And I'm curious, is it a personal sense of purpose? Is it a calling? Or is this like serendipity that you just happen to be doing all these things and love it? Well, I have to tell you, some of the things that I'm doing now, Frank, are things that crossed my path and it turns out that I fell in love with them. Others are things that I figured out earlier in my life that I wanted to do, like financial services. You know, I was 19 years old when I had my first internship on Wall Street. But the singing that I do, for example, I've been doing that ever since I was nine years old. So many of the things that I'm doing now were things that I I had aspirations around once I learned about them. But then there are other things, Frank, like being an author. These are things that I learned along the way and wanting to share the experiences I've had on Wall Street were the things that provoked the books. So if I hadn't had the experience, if it hadn't been so tough, then who knows if I would have gotten the pearls, as I like to call them, that I've acquired that have been useful to other people, not only in financial services, but in other industries. So the one thing I will tell you is that the desire for excellence, I have to give credit to my parents for that. They always made me feel that no matter what I did, I should give it my all. I'd say my parents and my maternal grandmother. But you know, how do you know when you found it, right? Because what I'm seeing when I interview people, when I'm having conversations, increasingly people are saying, you know what, I want three things. I want money. I want status. But I want the sense that I'm contributing to something bigger than myself and that energizes me. How do you know it when you found it? Because you could apply 
your discipline and sense of excellence to anything, and you will do well. But there's something that happens that kind of speaks inside of you when you found the thing that you feel ultra motivated to pursue. Have you experienced that or not? You know, the best analogy I'm going to give you right now is think about that first ride you went on at either an amusement park or Disney World or the State Fair. And you said to your parents, can we go again? Right. That's how you feel when you know you've done something that makes you feel good and is normally something that you have done on behalf of somebody else. I'll give you an example. Carla, the public speaker. Again, my mother used to always kid me that I like to talk, but I never would have thought that my voice as a speaker would be more powerful and important than my voice as a singer. But it turns out that I love it. So how do you know? You get that feeling inside that, boy, this feels great. Can I do it again? I love that. Serving others and getting a lot out of that yourself. You mentioned earlier that you came into financial services early in life. I'm a latecomer. You know, I'm very recent, fairly unaware about financial services through undergrad and law school. But you've been in financial services for 30 years. You've seen a lot. But how did you get connected so early on? Because this is, I think, unusual when you look at women and then women of color in particular, black women. Mm -hmm. It's unusual to have that kind of passion so early. So can you just give us a little bit of context of how that happened? Absolutely. The SEO program, it was then called Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. It's now called Seize Every Opportunity. It was started by Mike Oshawitz and a few of his colleagues, and it was designed to get talented kids of color and put them in summer internships on Wall Street. And the objective or the hope was that these firms on Wall Street who had not had kids of color before then would say, wow, look at this talent. And so Mike Oshawitz in his brilliance said, ah, Maybe we have a shot of changing the face of Wall Street by getting these kids in on this two-year analyst program so when they graduate, they can then start and then hopefully they can go and make careers in finance. Well, my colleagues who were freshmen with me at the time, they did the program in the summer of 81. They came back in the fall of 81, the beginning of our sophomore year, ranting and raving about how great this program was, but how difficult it was, how it was stressed interviews, blah, blah, blah. And Frank, if you don't know this about me, I'll tell you, I am negatively motivated. So when you tell me I can't do something or something's hard, I'm all over it. Right. And so I decided I would go for it. And I had never been to New York, didn't have any idea what I was going into, and then came to New York and worked with one of the banks that had just joined the program and loved it. And again, going back to the negative motivation, let's talk about the aha. Like you, I wanted to be a lawyer. And as I said to people, if you grow up black in the South in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, and you were smart, people put you into three categories. You should be a teacher, you should be a nurse or a doctor, or you should be a lawyer. So I was in the lawyer track. And all of a sudden that summer, I realized that the things that attracted me to the law were actually found in business. Number one, I wanted to have a lot of responsibility very early on. Number two, I wanted to call the shots. And that was the summer I realized that the lawyers don't call the shots. The business people call the shots, but the lawyers help you get it done within the context of the law. And number three, I did want to make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and here was the marginal thing that pushed me over the edge. I did not see a lot of women. I did not see a lot of people of color. And I kept asking myself the question, why? Why? This is not that hard. And so that made it even more attractive. Again, that negative motivation. Why not? And so I was on my way after that. Thanks for sharing that. And I've listened to a lot of your speeches and your podcast. And 
at least in my view, a lot of what you talk about, it can apply to women and it can apply to women of color, but they're really lessons for everyone. Mm-hmm. And one of the lessons that I found intriguing was about career development and the ability to influence people, no matter what level you may exist at within a company. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit of your advice to someone about how to think about navigating the corporation and the labyrinthian path that many of us have to go through to succeed, but how can you exercise influence along the way at every level? Absolutely. So exercising influence really is about the relationships that you have, Frank, right? Because when you're early on in your career, you may not, quote, have the juice in order to get things done on your own word. But those who are senior to you that do respect you, that do listen to you, they can get it done. And very often, senior people are not as connected throughout the organization as they would like to think, and frankly, as they would like to be. So as a junior person, you actually have a lot of leverage and a lot of power if you can be articulate about what's going on throughout the rest of the organization and offer information to senior people that they might not easily be able to acquire. And that can build the trust as well as you're talking about what you see from the level that you sit at. And as you build those relationships, if you want to get something done on your behalf or you think something would be great for the organization, now you have some place to go and have that conversation. And then you would be able to get it done, not necessarily by your own hand, because you don't have the power to execute, but by your argument and your influence and your conversation. So it boils down to two words that I talk about a lot, Frank. It boils down to your relationship currency, your ability to get heard in an organization and to affect any outcome, execute any outcome is about the relationships that you have around you. Because even when you're senior, unless you're the CEO, it's rarely just your word that will get it done. You still need other partners that are going to be in your amen corner or that might offer you resources in order to be able to get something done. So it's about investing in those relationships early is how you can actually start to build and drive your influence. So let's spend some time on that then. And this may be the perfect time to shift a little bit toward the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So relationship currency requires some kind of mutuality, right? Some reciprocal connection. And I hear people talk about this idea of bring your whole self to work. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting thing. I'm not sure you want anyone to bring their whole self to work, you know, but just bring as much as yourself to work as possible. But how do you do that as someone who others may not have kind of a full understanding of their history and their background and their motivations or may have a perception of them that's limited? How do you cross that chasm from being someone that is relatively unknown, not only as an individual, but as a type of person, there may not be many women in the organization or Latinx or Black. How do you cross that chasm and start to build a relationship with someone who may not have that deep understanding? Okay. Thank you so much for this question. I love talking about this question, Frank. I am the (laughs) authenticity lady because it was a big aha for me that your authenticity is your distinct competitive advantage. Nobody can be you the way that you can be you. And the day that you join the organization, somebody else didn't get the job because you were the best person for the job. So the last thing any of us should ever do, contrary to our actions, 
the last thing we should ever do is to submerge that which is uniquely you. But normally what happens, Frank, when you walk into an organization, especially in those early days, if you, A, don't see a lot of people that look like you, B, you're doing something that you've never done before, and C, oh, you make a mistake in those early days, immediately your reaction is to think that, uh uh-oh, maybe I should speak like so-and-so, walk like so-and-so, dress like so-and-so, present in this way, and you completely abandon your edge, right? And here's another interesting thought that I really want your listeners to think about. This past year, when we were in the shelter-in-place protocol, authenticity was front and center in terms of what leaders needed to do in order to be able to engage with their people when so much uncertainty was around us, uncertainty around the pandemic itself, uncertainty around when we would get some kind of antidote, uncertainty around what was going on in the streets with respect to social unrest on the back of racial inequities in this country. There was so much uncertainty. And you needed people to trust you in order for them to buy your empathy. You needed people to trust you in order to be able to follow you into unknown territories. You needed people to trust you in order to lean in and produce anyway when they were in a context, i.e. the home, where they were not used to producing. But people don't trust you if they don't believe that it's the real you, that you're being authentic. And so many people who are sitting in leadership seats today have never really been who they are. They have followed a different script. So I kept scratching my head wondering why my phone was ringing off the hook from C-suite leaders across all industries and asking questions like, how do I lead in this moment? How do I keep my people motivated and inspired? You know, how do I make sure that we stay on track with what we've been trying to do with diversity and inclusion and not get derailed by this pandemic? And I realized that part of the struggle was they had never had that level of authentic engagement before, and now they were being called to do it, and it was like, where do I start? So here's how you bring all of you into any environment. Number one, know who you are. And I don't say that lightly, Frank, because let's face it, before this shelter-in-place protocol, we were all running around so much that we failed to say, who am I today? relative to who I was in 2012 or 2014. And we should all be asking the question, who am I today, relative to when we started this shelter-in-place protocol, because consciously or unconsciously, we have all been changed. So number one, know who you are. Number two, understand that we're all multifaceted. There is an intellectual you, there's a funny you, there's a pensive you, there's an argumentative you, there's a discerning you. So understand that we're all multifaceted and embrace that. And then the third key, to bringing all of you into any environment is now you relax. Now you relax and walk into any environment and you will be able to feel the energy in the moment and decide in that moment which facet of you will authentically connect with the other person on the other side of that conversation or the 14 people in that boardroom or the thousand people that are there to hear you speak that day. You will feel that energy. And the mistake that people make is that they think in order to be authentic, I have to show you all of the facets. I got to show you all of who Carla Harris is. Otherwise, I'm not being authentic. And that is not true. You want to present that part of you that authentically connects wherever that other person is, which means you must be free to figure out where they are and meet them right where they are. And from there, you can start to grow an authentic relationship. That's how you show up every day. Oh, I love that. I got to write that one down. In fact, I did write it down. I'm going to keep that. But you know, the thing that I struggle with on this, though, is that there's a certain vulnerability 
in being authentic, in the way you're describing it, right? You have to basically open up a bit. And even if you're not showing all the facets of yourself, what I hear you saying is that it requires a little bit of courage. You want the proximity that's necessary to build true relationships. You have to have the courage of being authentic. Is that a correct interpretation? That is a correct interpretation. And you know what's funny? Every time someone says, oh, it requires a measure of vulnerability. I sit there and I go, uh, so? <laughs> so what? You know what? Because we're vulnerable anytime, anyway, Frank, right? Yeah. You don't know what could transpire in your life at any moment. So by definition, you're vulnerable. So if you think you are protecting yourself, protecting something, protecting what? Because in reality, we're all vulnerable in any moment. Exactly. I mean, just look at what has transpired around you in the world with people walking down the sidewalk or somebody being in a building. We're all vulnerable. So what is this fear around vulnerability? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And what I love about the structure of what you're saying, too, is this whole inner journey of knowing yourself, which is a tough journey. People think it's a one-all thing. It's a tough journey, but worthwhile. But the outcome of being relaxed and free, that to me is a gift. Yeah. The fact that you can actually feel free and relaxed and comfortable in your own skin. And that's not just for diverse employees. This is something that applies for everyone. Absolutely. And so I love it. So you have some individuals who are going to come into a work environment and diverse executive comes in and they're going to find barriers. It's just inevitable, right? There's no industry and no company that has transcended all the issues of racial inequity and they're going to be barriers in the way. And so I'm curious, how have you advised diverse executives who you know will face that struggle. Mm -hmm. So be authentic, great, but now you're facing someone or you're facing a system or a systematic process that's clearly a roadblock. What's your advice to them? The good news is if it's a person, now you just remind yourself there's not a person born that you cannot get around. And if you are feeling constrained by one person, then that should be your red flag that you have failed to invest in other relationships so that you can actually have some mobility around that person. You can engage in a little demand push and a little demand pull to use some marketing terminology, right? <laughs> and you start leveraging your other relationships so that that person is not the only voice about you in the room so that somebody may say, hey, why don't you come and work on this team? Or why don't you do X, Y, and Z, right? And what you really want to do is to make that person who might be the impediment or the person that is creating the negative noise about you in the marketplace, you want to make them the outlier because you want a lot more voices saying, no, Frank is great. Oh, he's that guy's amazing. So that one person now, who's usually an insecure person, who's usually a person that doesn't have a whole lot of power, that's trying to stand in your way. Now this person is feeling, oh, well, wait, maybe I can't say too many negative things about Frank. But you endeavor to make sure that your success team is strong and vibrant and vocal so that that one person that's in your way can quickly be muted or will end up having their power taken away. It's fantastic. You know, one thing that I've also been thinking about is that we've been having this conversation about diversity for a long time. It's moved from diversity to diversity and inclusion to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, you yourself talked about SEO back when you first started thinking about financial services. And don't get me wrong, we've made progress. We are definitely moving forward, but the pace seems very slow when I look at the stats, when I look at the data, whether you want to look at the representation of women on boards or in positions of CEO. I think there may be four or five black CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. When you look at the pipeline of executives, particularly in growth areas, when I look at tech, for example, 
I'm very worried about that. And financial services has its own opportunities. So have things really changed? Or is this another blip caused by the racial equity issues that rose up in June of last year with the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests? Is this a blip in the data or are things really different this time? Yes. So before I answer this question, let me just give you a little disclaimer. I am a glass half full kind of girl. Right. So I am always going to see the positive. And I do not think this is just a blip. And as I said many times last year, that I definitely thought that this was a movement and not a moment. And let me tell you why. The first is the power of the millennials and the Zers. If you look at who was really out there on those streets every single night, day after day, month after month, the largest population were millennials and Zers. Frank, they have a very different definition of what excellence looks like in a work environment, what excellence looks like, frankly, in the world. And it is multicultural and it is multigender. When I walked out of Harvard Business School 34 years ago, excellence in corporate America looked like six white men at the top. There was nothing strange about that. You pick the company, IBM, Goldman Sachs, Ford Motor Company, Morgan Stanley, Procter & Gamble, HP, pick the company, six white men at the top. So I knew that as a woman and a woman of color, if I wanted to play, I had to be comfortable being the first and the only. And again, that was nothing strange or scary either. That's just how it was. But for millennials and Zers, they've grown up in a very different world. They have seen women lead. They might have a mother who's in the C-suite. They have also gone to very elite schools where there's a smart black kid on the left, smart Asian kid on the right, smart Hispanic kid sitting in front of them, smart Indian kid sitting behind them. That is what excellence looks like. So when they are looking to join organizations, they're looking for their definition of excellence. And if they don't see it, they don't go. And if they go, they don't stay. And I don't care who you are as a company in what industry, you will now be compromised in your aspiration to be the employer of choice in that industry. So you're going to have to think about how you can create the kind of culture that is going to attract the best talent today. And millennials and Zers are the dominant population in the workforce. The second reason why I don't think that it is a blip is that there's never been a time in my professional life where we have had such a broad education-oriented conversation our conversations with each other in a corporate context has not just been about what's going on. We've been asking the second order derivative question of why. What's happening? You know, what was the history? Why is it systemic? Why can't we get past it? Right. And then the third thing is I think we have finally shifted from this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging being something that's right to do or moral to do, or nice to do. I think we're finally exploring the conversation that it is the commercial thing to do, that it is of strategic importance, either from a workforce or consumer perspective. There's more data in the marketplace than ever about the buying power of Black people, the buying power of brown people alone, almost $4 trillion if you put that together, not to mention other constituents. So I think people are now starting to think about it with the right framework. And I would argue we have been talking about it and looking at it through the wrong lens for the last 30 years, which is why we are not further along, Frank. Because what strategic imperative do you know of that any company works at 
for 30 years. Right, exactly. Doesn't happen. And by the way, when it's a firm-wide priority, you see a different level of energy. But, you know, I want to stick with something here because I've been amazed at Gen Z in particular, and I see it with trailing millennials. They walk the talk. I don't want to say anything bad about boomers or Gen X. I love everybody. You're all good. (laughs) But what I will say is that I think there was a lot of talk before, and when the moment of truth came, people would say, you know, I got to suck it up. I'll push through it. But Gen Zers and millennials are walking. Yeah. So now you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, and you say, I just heard someone say, you know what, these Gen Zers and millennials, you won't be able to attract them, and you certainly won't be able to retain them if you don't have a diverse and equitable and inclusive work environment. The communities in which you operate won't welcome you. And you know what, we've been a little slow down this path, but I want to get it right. What's the one thing you got to get right in order to create the momentum Mm -hmm. within the whole organization so that you're heading down that path? Yes, creating equity in your organization, equity around representation, equity around compensation, equity around processes, meaning you give people equal access with respect to development and opportunities to continue to ascend. That's the first thing you got to get right, because all of that has a multiplier effect, not only today with everybody in the organization, but it has a multiplier effect two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, long after your tenure. So those are the things that you need to figure out. How do I create equity in my organization so that everyone has equal opportunity to be developed? Every leader feels like they have an ambidextrous team. I don't have to pick Frank over Jamie because Frank and Jamie are both great. If you hire them all, Perry Passu at the same time, why is there a skill in equity when you get two years out, five years out? If you go back and look at who's been exposed to what opportunities and transactions, you will find the problem. That's not the candidate's issue. That's the house issue. Let's make sure that people are getting paid for the job that they're doing and that there's equity across there because there's nothing more powerful that people talk about than pay. Although every organization talks about, you know, that that's confidential information. Everybody talks about it. And you need the representation right. Every organization would like to feel like they can grow their own. But it takes 10 years to grow a senior executive from right out of college or right out of graduate school all the way to a senior role in the organization. You no longer have 10 years of time. The rate of innovation now is 12 months, and some might argue that it's less. And within that period of time, you're going to have at least two economic cycles. And every time we go into a different cycle, you lose people. Or your competition comes to take your lunch money, take your best people. So if you don't have that representation today, create it. If you don't have enough people of color or women on your operating team, can you add a seat? Can you add a seat on your ELT, on your executive leadership council, on your team? What's the issue with adding a seat? But you need the representation because here's where millennials and Zers are different than boomers. Millennials and Zers really need to see it in order to believe that they have a shot. Those of us who are boomers, we were willing to go into unknown territory. Being the first, that was table stakes for us. They don't like it and they don't trust it. They want to know somebody has plowed the territory and there's a clear path with a strategy and a goal. All I got to do is do these eight things. I'll get there. Absolutely. I want to turn the lens on DEI for a second. So we've been talking about talent and internal culture. When I look at investment management and asset management and the allocation of capital, whether that's venture capital or private equity or even money coming through diverse managers and broker dealers, clearly we have a gap Mm -hmm. between the distribution and allocation of capital to 
undercapitalized communities, mostly communities of color. But at the same time, and I've heard you speak to this before, it seems like there's an enormous opportunity there that we're overlooking. Why do you think we have this gap in terms of Black, Latinx, women-owned businesses and the allocation of capital? Yes, there are three reasons in my view. And let me just say this. I'm going to put aside one of the reasons that people could say, well, it's just straight racism, Carl. It's just straight discrimination. Let me put that over there to the side, right? And I'm not going to debate that because there's a measure of that, no question. But let's talk about the other reasons as well. The first one is lack of diversity at the investing table. If you have not been exposed to different markets and different consumers, and there's nobody at your table that can talk about that, then chances are you're going to miss those opportunities that might serve the African-American community or might serve the Latino community or that might serve the Asian community or the American Indian. If you have nobody that has any experience around any of those markets, you're going to miss those opportunities. And they are huge. Number two, I would argue that because companies think about expansion risk differently. So what I mean by that, almost every venture capital fund has anywhere from 10 to 20% of their portfolio that they dedicate to expansion risk. That means investing in areas that they don't know about. So for example, 20 years ago, that might've been the cloud. It might've been driverless cars. It might've been software as a service, things that were new and on the horizon and cutting edge frontier kind of stuff. Well, we've made the argument, VCs, why don't you think about investing in entrepreneurs of color as part of your expansion risk? You haven't done it before, so go and learn about it. Because when you invest in that space, some partner or partners are dedicated to learning about that space so they can come back and educate the rest of the investment committee and they can start being a bigger player in that space should it warrant that thing. And then the third impediment I'm going to argue is that Historically, investors have gone with those things that are familiar, the schools that I'm familiar with, the people that I'm familiar with, the circles, because a lot of deals, let's face it, are referred. So again, if folks of color and women aren't in those referral groups, they're never going to get to that table. And then traditionally, VCs or other type of early stage investors have not been forthcoming with what I'm going to call critical and productive feedback. And if you go into a pitch and you've done something wrong and no one really tells you what you did wrong, how do you improve for the next conversation? But to your earlier point, it is a huge opportunity, which is why we as a firm are playing in it every way that we possibly can. Not only do we have the Morgan Stanley Multicultural Innovation Lab, we just made the announcement that we are partnering with three other major corporations to put together a next level fund that will invest in those companies that are at that series A, that series B level. Because what we found in playing in this ecosystem for the last half dozen years is that not only is there a death valley at the seed and the pre-seed level, and because most multicultural entrepreneurs and even women entrepreneurs don't necessarily have those family and friends that they can do that pre-seed and that seed round with. So there's one death valley. But there's another death valley, if you can get over that hump, right at the series A. There's not enough Series A investors that also are patient investors. So what we tried to do with this fund is to say, hey, look, Marketplace, if large companies can come together and lock arms and not only write the check, but also contribute those resources that they are exceptionally good at in the industry, because these are all leaders in their own spaces. Now, if we can not only write the check, but we can also contribute our expertise, now think about how 
fast these companies are going to be able to advance. That is exciting. And so happy to see you guys pursuing that, by the way, Carla. I want to close where we started, and that's back on the personal front. I got to tell you, I'm fascinated by the fact that you're a gospel recording artist, played at Carnegie Hall, played at the Apollo, and I spent some time in the music industry. And what I've learned is that you always have these interesting lessons that people who've never been in the music industry think only apply to the music industry. But I think they're transferable. They can be translated. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, as a recording artist, as a musical artist, what lessons or a single lesson have you carried into the business world? Yes, there are so many, but I'm going to give you one that I hope will be very useful to your listeners. I was getting ready for one of my Carnegie Hall concerts and I was singing a song and I was really worried about whether or not I was going to be flat on this song. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't be flat. Everybody knows this song. Everybody don't know if I messed up. And my voice teacher said something to me that, again, changed the way I think about it. And I'm saying this because so often professionals are worried about whether or not they're going to be enough. And she said to me, Carla, your audience is pulling for you. Everybody wants you to do well. Nobody spends $100 a ticket to come and hear you mess up. They want you to sing well. They want you to blow that song out. So you go out there and you do what you do best. That's it, because they're pulling for you. So whenever I encounter a professional who's feeling a little insecure about something, I say, listen, your audience is pulling for you. They know that you deliver excellence. Go do it. And so that definitely has been transferable to me when I have met a new client, when it's been an important pitch, when something is really riding on this decision or I want a client to trust my judgment. I go in and I just deliver my excellence because the audience is pulling for me. I love it. I love it. Carla, it's been an honor interviewing you today. And it's been really a joy having this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure having you. It was my honor and my pleasure, Frank. Thank you guys very much for letting me be on The Bid. On our next episode of The Bid, we'll finish our sustainability miniseries with Paul Bodner, BlackRock's new global head of sustainable investing. Paul will provide his perspective from decades of working in sustainability, including our outlook for the remainder of the year. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44. 
020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.